Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. Thanks a lot to my friends at Sastrify for sponsoring this episode. A lot of CTOs I know are responsible for procurement of software as a service by accident and never have the time and energy to work on optimizing their costs. For example, at my company RMR, we have a lot of tools. G Suite, Adobe Creative Cloud, New Relic and many, many more. Sastrify helps companies like ours to optimize the costs and negotiate with suppliers of such software. In our case, they helped us to save around 20k per year, which is a lot if you look at our company size of around 150 people. It is a simple and hassle-free process we went through, and I can just recommend anyone listening to do the same. They actually promise to save more money than they cost. They are already working with a lot of AlphaList members, such as Runtastic, Westwing, or Emma. To get started using their services, please visit sastrify.com slash AlphaList. Just check the show notes to get the link. You'll get a 50% discount for the first three months in addition. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. The headline for this episode is remote one-on-one, -on -one, a topic I'd like to touch for a while. And today I'm very proud to have Eric Johnson as my guest. Eric is the CTO of GitLab, a tool every listener here potentially knows. They collected almost half a billion in funding. That is quite impressive. And they are known to be one of the most advanced remote work companies in the world. Eric, anything to add here about yourself? Um, that's a pretty good intro. The only other things I would add to that are, um, yeah, I'm a startup person, so GitLab is my fifth startup. So I'm happy to talk about, you know, starting uh, at small companies and growing them uh, with varying, varying degrees of success. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would say just to contextualize some of my answers, there are, you know, many types of CTOs. It's maybe the most varied C-level position. And so, um, you know, I've worked with CTOs who are the lead sales engineer and their role is very outward facing. I've worked with uh, CTOs who are a PhD in some very obscure field and do nothing but pure R&D outside of product development and engineering. Or um, some like myself are kind of like the super VP of, of engineering. And so um, if that's helpful to your audience, I would say that's uh, that latter type is the kind of type of CTO I am. So I, I manage 560 people directly or indirectly. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of the core of my strength is I, I came up through the sort of VP of engineering ranks. Um, but obviously I try to do as much outward facing stuff as is helpful to the company, including something like this. Um, and, uh, in terms of pure R and D, um, we do have a little department we started called incubation engineering. And so we are doing some of that kind of far future type work, far future for GitLab, um, as well. So I'm kind of branching out into those other areas of, uh, of CTO. So I'm sure there's people in your, uh, in, in your listeners who are a uh, one or, or many types. And, uh, I think understanding that where I come from is, you know, um, uh, managing a large group of people doing product development will help people understand, uh, um, where I'm coming from and, and hopefully whether or not they should listen to me. And, and how did you 
get into that role? How did you slip into it? Like typically there's a certain nerd path um, <laughs> for every for every CTO and a VP engineering I, I, I talk to. Um, what, what is yours? Yeah, uh, I'd say it's definitely non-traditional. So, um, you know, like, like a lot of people you probably talked to, I was definitely the, the the tinker as a kid, taking things apart in my parents' home, failing to put them back together and, and ruining stuff, went into math and sciences, um, and uh, actually started my, my college career in electrical engineering. So it was a highly technical field. But I, in retrospect, I wanted to do things, I the way my mind thinks is, is um very, uh, very visual, very um, uh, spatial. And I want to do things like robotics and whatnot. I ended up in a program that was doing mostly abstract math and I could do the math, but I, I didn't find it intrinsically rewarding. So I went to my first day of classes, my sophomore year after doing the, the, the entry level stuff and just said, I, I did just don't, this doesn't make me happy doing it every day. I want to do something else. So I walked in my advisor's office and I had two interests at that time. One was computer science in retrospect, it would have been a much more direct path to if I just chosen that. But instead, my needle kind of went to the other end of the spectrum, being sort of burned out on, on double E. And uh, philosophy was one of my personal interests. And so I happened to be at a, at a school that had a fantastic philosophy program. Um, and I ended up there. Um, and in retrospect, that's sort of fortuitous. When you look at engineering ranks, in engineering management ranks as startups, you see a lot of history majors literature majors, some philosophy, like there's something about like, I think of philosophy as systems thinking, and it's not all that different from um, technological thinking in many ways. There are systems, there are inputs, there are outputs. Um, and so it does, it does lend itself to, uh, um, to engineering management strategy, but also obviously there's a lot of reading, writing, communication, and that turns out to be very valuable in the managerial realm. So it worked out, but it's not the path I would, I would recommend to people. For me, I kept kind of programming on the side. I kept that computer science interest. I was a hobbyist programmer, went through the philosophy program, and then ultimately decided, you know, my professors at the time were the type of people that would you know, take a summer off and go learn Portuguese for fun. You know, they just had that talent for foreign languages and they would speak ancient Greek, Latin, German, French, and, you know, a couple other languages just for fun. And that wasn't me. I don't really have that mind for music or foreign languages. And, and so I, I would have struggled to go further and like get a PhD and teach, which is kind of like the only thing you can do if you go far enough down the philosophy ranks. So I graduated, kind of wandered for a little while, was working jobs I hated and programming every night living at my parents' house. And then it clicked at one point. It's like, maybe this is the thing that I should do. So I scrapped together a, a personal portfolio of, of projects I was working on, started applying and, and got my first job at a technology company that also turned out to be a, a startup. So it was a small kind of entrepreneurial company. They took a chance on me and, and the sort of rest, uh, the rest is history from there. So it all worked out, but I, I definitely wouldn't recommend to young people of like, oh yeah, that's the path you should, you should take. It's going to, it's going to end up where, where I did. I feel very fortunate that I, I um, found my way and that the technology industry is at a point where, um, you know, if you can, if you can do, you can get the job. It's not about credentials and it's not about specific schools or degrees at what, um, mm -hmm. at this point. And anything that, that sticked from your studies, I mean, writing, for example, as, as, as a skill that is quite popular amongst CTOs? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I quote philosophers all the time. I, I try to hold, hold back on that, but I, I draw a surprising amount of my, uh, philosophy education into, uh, into my, the, the management responsibilities for sure. Um, 
we can get into how GitLab is a remote company, but certainly our documentation culture is a big part of that. And so uh, asynchronous communication, reading, writing is uh, is really important. And I got sort of trained up on you know, how to be clear, also concise. You know, it should be everything the person needs to know um, uh, in a format that they can consume and nothing that they don't need to know. And I think sometimes uh, people that love writing can go into that territory of lots of extraneous information. So knowing how to pare it down and make it, make it effectively, uh, make it effective is, is really important. Yeah. I, I recently had Tim O'Reilly here in the podcast and he's kind of, uh, a person that, that knows a lot about writing and, and how mm -hmm. to sacrifice yourself sure. and how to structure things. And I think this is really like a secret ingredient for a lot of companies already. Right. And I think Amazon kind of teaches that, um, uh, really a lot, um, in the last years. Yeah that you start with a PR potentially um, instead of uh, starting with a ticket. Um, and I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my, my wife is, uh, she, her field of psychology, she, she's a PhD. So she, uh, her training had a lot to do with, with writing and it is highly structured. Same with lawyers, the um, legal documents are highly structured language. And um, when you start to understand that structure and what works and what doesn't, you start to see similarities between code um, honestly. Um, and if you're good at picking up on those patterns, um, you know, it lends itself towards uh, programming. Sometimes I talk to the lawyers at, at GitLab or people are doing other things. And I think, gosh, in another life, you, you may have gone down the computer science route and been a fantastic uh, programmer. I think one, one thing where you can easily discover that you're, you're also into structuring yourself and writing is uh, your readme. So if, if I Google your name uh, or if, if uh, the listeners Google your name, then they'll find a readme. On, mm -hmm. on, on yourself. Um, what is the idea behind that? Yeah, I, um, I forget who started the trend, but um, if, you, if you Google engineering readmes, um, you'll see like the initial version of it and people blogging about it. And um, it's really a way for um, new employees or, or my reports or people engineering to um, be able to go and uh, learn about me, read async, and um, you know, have an idea of like, what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? Or if they're interacting with me, um, um, how can they be presenting information to me the way that, in a way that I find understandable and uh, and uh, and I can consume it? Um, but it's not about having a big title or uh, how to manage up. We encourage anybody at GitLab to create a README. So there's actually a whole directory. Mine is just one amongst many, um, and uh, and lots of different people at every you know at, at junior levels, mid levels, um, so to speak, have uh, have created Readmes, and it's just a handy way to. You know, you meet someone or, or uh, you hire someone and say, hey, here's, you know, here's a little bit about me. And hopefully it changes and evolves uh, with time because obviously we're associated at an entrepreneurial startup. You're, you're growing and changing and learning, um, you know, as you go. So it's important to keep it up to date. So Jason Warner, the CTO of, of uh, GitHub, actually came up with the sentence, introspection is the ultimate superpower. And I think that kind of spins into the same direction, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, you know, to quote philosophers, I think uh, Sophocles said, "The unexamined life is not worth living." Right. So, I, I would think that, like my my, the way I would frame that though is like, um, so as opposed to introspection, I think like the the ability to correctly self assess. If I were to like kind of define it more precisely, that's what's really uh, really important. And you know, moving into my wife's field, there's something called the Dunning Kruger effect, where um, they basically develop a, you know, you could take any objective measure of your knowledge or performance in a field. It could be plumbing, it could be engineering, whatever. And you have a test that assesses for it. And then you, you have people take that test 
And then you also ask them, how do you think you did on that test as a separate data point? And it turns out there's an inverse correlation between how well people think they did and how they actually did on it. And then, um, uh, and then when you get to uh, people that are worldwide experts in a field, it turns out they actually slightly underestimate their knowledge, which means like top scientists or whomever, they uh, are skeptical of their own knowledge. And so um, how well you can accurately self-assess actually correlates with how effective you are at, at a given field. And the, the higher your confidence is that you know something, you're an expert in something, is actually an indication that you you probably aren't. Um, and it sort of makes sense. There's probably a variety of reasons why, but if you feel like you've learned everything there is to learn, there's, there's little motivation to learn new things. And I think um, uh, people that are the, the uh, top in their field are always learning um, and always innovating and, and trying things and exposing themselves to new information. So how much does your readme then correlate with your real personality? <laughs> uh, it's, it's meant to, but, um, you know, uh, um, that I, various people have, have found it helpful. Um, I read other people's, uh, readmes, you know, it's, it's bi-directional. Um, and, uh, I, I hope it, I hope there's a high degree of correlation. I mean, how I endeavor to work is there shouldn't be two Eric's It shouldn't feel like there's a there's a work Eric that's highly polished or political or something like that. Then there's a personal Eric where I like to wear Hawaiian shirts and drink beer or something like that. So you know who I am. At, I, I in order to make me happy, I want to bring my full authentic self to work. Obviously, there are you know if you're talking to a customer or something like that, you have to have a certain degree of polish and whatnot. But um, for the most part, it's, it should be one to one overlap. Okay, I think one one important. Um aspect from your readme is uh, the sentence, he believes in the servant leadership model and staying cool under pressure. Can you tell us about both? Yeah. So the, the servant leader model is well known. Um, the way I think about it is you have separation of concerns or division of labor within a, within an engineering organization. Someone might be focused more on backend uh, versus front end versus test automation. And You are an expert in that area, but it also comes with the obligation to sort of lend those skills to your teammates to make the whole team more effective and make them more effective. And then um, management as a skill, I view as just another sort of thing that you can specialize in. But I think because you've got a organizational structure that looks like a pyramid, I think some managers can take that too far. Some people can sort of miss interpret that managers are above everybody else. And I don't think that's the case. I think managers have a separate specialty, just like front end versus back end. And uh, it also comes with a, an obligation or imperative to use those skills to make everybody else more effective, make the team more effective. So I usually tell people to the extent there's this pyramid or this um, hierarchy, it's really there for the benefit of things like hiring and communication because um, it's, it's an efficient an efficient structure in which to arrange people in that regard. But it's not about um, I'm more valuable than someone else because I'm higher in the org chart. And if you go GitLab org chart, you can see we've got it public in our handbook. And one of the things I, I love about it, maybe accidental, is it's actually oriented sideways. And so you don't necessarily see bigger titles at the top. They're at the left, which is has maybe a, a you know, it's a little bit easier to uh, not misinterpret as uh, correlated with value. Okay. So that's, uh, that's servant leadership. I will say I somewhat recently interviewed a candidate who is an engineering management candidate, and they talked about something called situational leadership. And so I've been thinking about that. I'm like, that's really interesting. And that might actually be a better formulation of where I'm at now. I think servant leader is definitely my default 
when engineers go into their first management role, I definitely tell them like, hey, you know, don't focus on, especially if you're inheriting your former peers' reports, don't focus on being the, the manager, just focus on being a servant leader. That's the best way to take over a team. Um, but at this point in my career, having done it for a long time, I definitely see myself shifting into different gears depending on the situation. And so there may be some people you talk to and say, oh, Eric, Eric's not a servant leader. He's a micromanager or something like that. It's like, well, that's probably a situation where we're not getting the results that we need and I'm becoming more involved um, or something like that. Um, and so, but I think you have to develop that um, ability to assess the situation and the different styles that you can apply over time. And that comes when you've been doing this for a, a, a relatively long time. Although I want to be cautious. I don't want to say it's about years served. It's much more about distance travel. There are people that learn things that maybe take most people 20 years of management experience and they do it in three because they were just at the right company at the right time or they were going through explosive growth or something like that. So it's not about years of experience. It's more about what you've been sort of exposed to. And staying cool under pressure. Yeah, thanks for the, the prompt on that one. So <laughs> this one's this one's interesting. Um, I, I think I say in the README, like, yeah, I, I endeavor to be cool under pressure. And sometimes that can actually, like the README is in part about side effects or, or you know, it's not about being perfect. It's like, hey, this is how this might be misinterpreted. Sometimes people might look at you and if you're not getting hot, if you're not getting agitated, if you're not starting to yell, some people might look at that as like, oh, well, he doesn't care. He's not passionate. Um, and that's not the case. Um, I think in, if you're if you're interested in like how to be cool under pressure, I think a lot of it comes from you know what I just mentioned, being you know exposing yourself to lots of different situations, having the time to experiment and try things and see what works. Um, so when you recognize those same patterns, you kind of have a toolbox of techniques you can apply, and that works. And I think so. I think coolness under pressure kind of comes over time. However, there's an el other element to me personally that may or may not apply to people um, like that first. Uh, um, example does. So like growing up, I was that sort of like really overly anxious kid that would just stay up all night with insomnia, worrying about global warming or something like that. You know, like I was, I didn't have enough of a filter to, to know like what to care about versus what not to care about. And, um, I kind of burned out my, myself just, just worrying. Um, and so I was, I was the opposite of cool under pressure. I was like highly reactive to things. And um, I had to go through a period of time, like grade school, middle school, where uh, I just had to kind of, first I became somewhat detached and I stopped caring about school and, and whatnot. And then I had to kind of find my way back to, to center. So I almost feel like I had to be down-regulated um, uh, to develop that coolness, uh, coolness under pressure. But um, so part of it was that, that kind of like I deliberately changed my personality early in my life because I just wasn't, I didn't feel happy or healthy And, uh, and I, and, and so like the way I think about that is, you know, you, you get information we're thinking using our frontal lobe, that's where the pattern detection is happening. That's where you're working through problems. And when you encounter something you can't understand, um, that's when you trigger, you know, an emotional reaction or something like that. And I think in the extreme sense, like there's a part of the brain, I believe called the amygdala and it's like a switch. If you trigger it, it goes right to your lower brain. And that's like your fight or flight response. And it's not, that's not, uh, I don't mean to discount emotions and not everything is that sort of um, acute, but um, you know, the goal is to not trigger that sort of system and keep everything up in the, in the frontal lobe. So for me, I had to kind of um, uh, learn to blunt my initial kind of overreaction to things uh, to stay up in that, in that frontal lobe. And then with the experience, I think the, um, 
the different techniques and uh, ways I could respond to situations kind of came online. And now at this point in my career, I kind of feel like there's very few uh, things that uh, I haven't uh, I haven't seen before. And I, I usually know at least something that has worked in the past. Um, and then you just try to be sensitive to like, well, this is a different company or this is a slightly different situation. So let's just not repeat patterns. Let's really think about is this the solution for the the matter at hand at the at the current time. Do you have any any technique or anything you can recommend to uh, others to to maybe maybe yeah just just ignore stuff uh, when it's not really pressing? I mean, waking up at night uh, thinking about some some technical stuff or leadership yeah. issues. What, what do you do? Um, well, in, in, I've I've heard it said by I learned about the amygdala thing from a, a neuroscientist that came to speak at my previous company, and they said like if in in their setting, like a clinical setting, if someone is triggered like that, really the only thing you can do to get them out of that is um, you have to let time pass and you can accelerate a little bit by just getting them to talk. If you're, if you're getting someone to talk through that, if they've been sort of triggered or whatever term you want to use, and you get them to kind of verbalize, it will kind of like blunt that initial response. You'll get them back up into sort of frontal lobe, uh, lobe thinking. So that's one thing. Um, And, you know, so if you, if you find yourself responding like that, you think like, oh, I need to, I need to start talking about what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, and that will, that will help you come out of it. But it does take time to pass. I mean, you've triggered cortisol and hormones and there's, there's a biological element to this. It does, it can't happen instantaneously. It's not all pure thought. Um, so, just, so that's just that's start shouting. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah calm, cool, collected verbalization, I guess would be the, the, the middle way. Um, and, um, Yeah, so that's that's one thing that comes to mind that might help people. Okay, maybe maybe like a, a brief history of of GitLab um, and talking about more bit more about GitLab. Uh, how how did you guys become like a real challenger of GitHub? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think yeah. you started off as as an open source, like purely open source Rails, very open tool uh, that mm -hmm. people used because they didn't want to pay for GitHub. Um, how did that change? Yeah, it, that's definitely one of our main differentiators. When I think about what draws people to uh, GitLab, you know, uh, developers tend to love open source. They love uh, um, using open source, contributing to it. Um, some of us get the chance to actually initiate a project, and that's an opportunity to, you know, uh, build a community around something that you built, which is exciting to a lot of people. And then we spend all day at work in these closed source tools, and that just feels sort of in, inconsistent in some way. So. Um, GitLab being uh, an open source DevSecOps platform is uh, is um, part of, I think, the initial impetus, but also it's it's just as true uh, today. Um, and we take being the, the open core shepherd of, of the project really seriously um, as a company. Um, so that's that's one element. Um, another big element is um, there's there's a story. It predates my time, but one of our engineers, Camille. Um, Uh, got frustrated at one point because he was working on GitLab CI, which was a separate project. And he's like, I don't want to do all that authentication stuff again. I don't want to do all that permission stuff again. Why don't we roll CI into GitLab source control? Um, and the initial reaction got that internally was like, no, that would be a bad idea. That's, it, would be so, uh, it would be so big. The user experience would be weird. And he's like, okay. And he thought about it more and he came back and, and, and posed it again and got denied again. And so there's actually something in our handbook called Disagree and Commit and disagree uh, again. And, and Camille, what he did was a great example of this. So he advocated that CI be bundled into GitLab. And that really initiated what has become what we call our single application strategy. And so the idea is you don't need to create a, a DevSecOps tool chain out of all of these different products. 
um, you can have it in a in a single uh, single application. We meaning the development community understands enough about what a good DevOps toolchain is um, that it's uh, uh, ripe for some some consolidation. And then when you get our benefits like one data store, one API, one consistent user experience, and I think it feels substantially um, better than uh, bridging your daily experience or toolchain across all these separate separate applications that, that integrate fairly well with, with one another. Um, so that's a, that's a big one. And then another thing I would say that's uh, maybe, maybe subtle, but really significant is the pace at which uh, we're, we're a very velocity focused company and the pace at which GitLab moves forward is remarkable. Like iteration is one of our core values. Um, and that has to do with just shipping a ton of small incremental value. And, but the net effect of that, that you see, if you're following our, our monthly, uh, self-managed release post is pretty dramatic. And so customers come to us say like, we're comfortable using GitLab or buying GitLab, not even based based on what it is today, but also what we know is going to be six months or a year down the line because it moves that fast. Um, and so the, the pace at which we're innovating, I think is, uh, is a big differentiator to, uh, to people. And, and, and long-term, would it be like a, a, a like, development platform covering all the needs of a developer or what, what will it be? Yeah, that's, that's very much the vision. I mean, you can uh, set up a Kubernetes cluster from within GitLab. You can test your code. You can run security scans on that code. You can deploy, you can get metrics from how that deploy went in your production environment. And, you know, if you're doing a blue green deploy or something like that, you can say, Oh, there's a problem rollback and you can do that all from within GitLab as you know, sort of the, the single pane of glass, glass, so to speak. Um, so that's, that's the vision. And then there's also, um, there's features in there for other personas, like product managers work very closely with engineering. Um, and so, uh, there's planning features, there's portfolio management features. You can see roadmaps and Gantt charts and things like that. There are features in there for designers that work very closely with, uh, with engineers, um, uh, taking part in those product development workflows, um, discussing their assets, collaborating with product managers as well. And so, Uh, we're expanding the breadth of what um, what GitLab does, um, including into sort of engineering adjacent um, specialties. Okay, and does it cover then the marketplace as well, or is that is a marketplace not not a piece in your in your in your puzzle? Wait, say more about what you mean by marketplace. Well, uh, if you look at GitHub, then it has a marketplace where, uh, let's say you 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 you're doing exception monitoring, you can you can publish your your tool, you can, you can sell your tool. Actually, you can, you can sell it on a marketplace for, for, for developers that might be attracted to it. Yeah. I think, um, that our answer to that would be, you know, open source. Um, you know, if, if you want things, go to the open source community and integrate those things into, um, how you've configured GitLab or, um, or into your, uh, into your code base. Okay. Okay. And, um, was it, was it due to the fact that you, um, developed a, a large open source code base that you actually got in touch with your community and then hired maybe a, a few ones of those and, and became a fully remote company or how, how did it work out? Yeah. So it's kind of two separate things in there. One is like our, how we interact with our community and then separately how we became a remote company. So, um, yeah, we do, we do pay attention to, um, on, on the, to answer the community question, um, we pay close attention to the contributions that we're getting, um, the amount of people commuting, uh, contributing to GitLab is important to us. We've got a team in our marketing department that does evangelism and outreach. Um, we've got people engineering focused on doing what we call MR, merge request coaching. 
MR coaching. Um, so if someone contributes, um, they have a, a GitLab team member that's a maintainer of the project, um, reviewing their code, doing so in a timely fashion, um, helping to teach and educate about how something, if something needs to change, why and, and how to do that. Um, so that it's an easy um, experience for people to contribute to, uh, to GitLab. And then, yes, we have uh, like a lot of the early employees, the ones that were here when I, when I started about four years ago, um, we hired them from the, from the GitLab community. And so to the extent we care about well, how many people internal are contributing to GitLab, internal to the GitLab Inc. meaning versus external, we hurt ourselves when we bring people external, internal to the company, but Hey, it's, it's given a lot of people the opportunity to take what was a, a passion project for them or a hobby and get to do it full time for work. Um, so, um, we want to keep growing that, that external community cause that's, uh, that's really meaningful to us. And then the, the second thing you mentioned was, is that really just becoming a remote company? That was before my time, but my understanding is not really. Um, the interesting bit is that it wasn't particularly intentional to be an all remote company. So, um, the, uh, early folks like, uh, DZ who created the open source project, Sid, our, our founder and CEO, uh, Marin, um, one of our first employees, um, uh, they got started, they were sort of just spread out all over Europe. Um, they applied to Y Combinator and got in and a bunch of people came over to the West coast of the U S to go through the, the program there and then, um, started an office and started hiring, you know, like our first salesperson, I think it was Hayden, uh, and other people. And, um, there was a whole kind of like co-working space almost. Um, and then people just kind of stopped showing up. Like they come in for the first couple of days and then, um, you know, because they were already collaborating with people in Europe and other time zones, they realized like, oh, well, you know, I have an early meeting, I'll just do it from home. And that worked just fine for everybody. And so we kept, uh, from what I understand, before my time, we kept sort of, you know, having offices and then seeing them go underutilized. And then eventually it was like, hey, maybe we could really lean into this thing um, and be very intentional about it. Um, and so I, I, I think it started more of as, a, as an accident. But once we detected that pattern, it was like, all right, like, what do we do to, to do this really well? We don't want people who weren't in the, uh, even if you don't have an office, there's typically a cluster of people, especially leaders. You don't want that to become um, a sort of form of favoritism. So they, they wanted to really make sure that people in other time zones and other countries had a good experience. And so you'll see a lot of content in our handbook around asynchronous work and, and collaboration. And that's really where that comes from is that's how GitLab conquers the time zone challenge. Um, and the ideal is, you know, everything's written down. Uh, we can talk about our documentation culture and um, uh, someone should be able to wake up in whatever um, time zone they're in. Or we've even got people in the same time zones and one likes to work early and one likes to work late. That's okay too. Um, and um, you should be able to kind of see in artifact form, you know, what was done, what the current state of something is, be able to pick it up if it's a work item, make progress on it, and then, you know, document where you left off and you go to bed or you go do things with your family or have a weekend and someone else picks it up and, and moves it, moves it forward. And um, I would say when I started, there was actually sort of an antipathy towards meetings where there was resistance to get on something like a Zoom call. Since then, I think we've we've developed a more balanced approach, which is we say asynchronous is kind of our default and that's the first thing that we do. But now we're pretty good about detecting when it stops working. And then we use, we sort of fall back to more relatively expensive uh, forms of communication, like a Zoom call or every once in a while we do fly to the same place and meet meet in person, like an employee conference or you know smaller, more sales marketing focused events and, and whatnot. Um, so uh, now it feels like effective because, you know, uh, like the, 
you know, to underscore an issue with async, like everybody knows sarcasm doesn't work over email, right? Um, and so those same types of things happen when you're, whether you're communicating over email or writing things down in, in GitLab issues, we run the whole company on, on uh, an instance of GitLab. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when miscommunication is happening, we just need to be mindful about saying, okay, clearly we're talking past one another. Let's hop on a Zoom and see if we can um, get on the same page in 15 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it takes. And then uh, try to switch back to a more asynchronous form of work. Okay. So you don't have synchronous standups or anything? Um, we kind of leave aspects like that up to um, individual uh, managers. So um, you can do a standup, but you can do it with a Slack bot and you can let it be async. You say like, you know, give your update anytime in this 24 hour period and everybody read the Slack channel. And that um, works fairly well. If you are blocked, which is one of the important functions of a standup, you know, just reach out proactively to the manager and they can, they can work on, uh, on blocking you. Um, there are, um, some teams that are kind of aligned in time zones, usually due to accident. And if they want to do a synchronous standup, they can do it. What we say is, you know, that cannot become a reason at some point down the future to not hire someone in Australia, if you're located in Europe or wherever it is, because it's inconvenient. Um, the only exception to that are teams where we have to sort of run a follow the sun model, meaning like SREs or our support staff, support as part of engineering at GitLab. Um, there, we need people awake and working um, when customers are awake and working, or we need to cover a 24-hour uh, time span in the day. Uh, and so we have to be deliberate about where we hire. But again, if some, we have someone in central Russia who um, I think likes to sleep in, and so they work Europe time, and that's okay too, as long as we know we're covered from a, from a time zone perspective. And did you ever hear the sentence help? I haven't seen anyone for days. Uh, I'm lost here. I need to see someone. I need to, to talk to someone. No, we do. Ha we do have, um, I haven't heard that. I'm sure it's happened. Um, I think when I joined, um, the company was about 200 people. I was the 99th person engineering. And at that time I would say we were a little bit light in the Asia Pacific region. Um, so like Japan, Australia, Korea, Thailand, uh, India to some extent. Um, and it, uh, I think some people did have that experience of like they're awake and working and there's just only a handful of people and Slack feels like the rest of the company is asleep. And that was probably true. Um, now we're 1400 or 1500 employees. And so that allowed us to get to what I would call sort of critical mass in that region. And um, I think it's a lot more comfortable for those, uh, for those folks. So we were lucky we had the sort of mandate to grow fast because we have a certain amount of funding, a certain business opportunity in front of us. Um, if you were uh, smaller, if you didn't have the sort of um, number of heads in your hiring plan to do that, you might have to think about, um, you know, targeting specific locations or something like that so people didn't have a bad experience. But some people are perfectly fine working mostly async and they have maybe a low need for social interaction or maybe they're getting what they needed more from their personal life. So everybody's everybody's different and that's, uh, that's okay. Um, We do have a variety of mechanisms at GitLab that are meant to sort of supplement that, you know, water cooler that, uh, so to speak, that in-person offices have or the lunchroom table or whatnot. So like one of our little ceremonies is, um, you know, called coffee breaks. And so when new employees join, they're encouraged to schedule 10 coffee breaks, you know, random people all over the country, uh, company rather, people in different functions. So you have a chance to learn about what does marketing do? What does engineering do? What does sales do? Um, and there's no agenda um, you know, you're drinking coffee or tea and you're just getting to know someone. Um, and so that's, that's one of the ways we supplement the kind of natural, um, um, natural socialization that happens when you're in the same physical space. 
but you can also have such things through like a Slack bot that uh, gets people in touch with each other, right? Uh, randomly or something like that. Is that, yeah, is that also I, something you do? I don't think it exists today, but I think at some point there was some form of roulette or there might be a Slack channel that I'm just not in where there's some kind of roulette and people are kind of randomly assigned uh, uh, people to do coffee breaks. I do, yeah, I do want to say that does exist or did exist at one point. And employees, so, they self-organize and do stuff all the time, uh, which is great. Uh, this was, th these techniques and what we try shouldn't all come from management. Um, employees surprise us all the time with with uh, innovative things they've tried, and some of them work. And when it works, we you know roll it out. To, we make it available to other people or standardize on it. Okay, and you seem to run on Slack a lot, or are you also an email company, or do you have other other channels as well? We are primarily a, a GitLab company. So we run, we try to do everything in issues. And that's, you know, you think of like, oh, I found a bug, I file an issue. That's absolutely true. Um, however, if marketing is going to run a campaign, they start an issue <laughs> and they have a backlog. So everybody, every function of the company runs on an instance of GitLab and we use issues and boards. Um, our handbook, I, you know, you can think of it as documentation. I think a more accurate way to think of it is actually as a database that contains the current state of the company and it's very, very active. So, you know, documentation we tend to think of as, well, it's written in stone. It's, it's documented for eternity or something like that. This is the most active repo I've ever been a part of. And it's changing. There's thousands of MRs going into it um, daily. Uh, and so the merge request is a really important um artifact for us. So if you think of like, what do, what do managers do? Managers change the state of their company, but in most companies, it's kind of like this ethereal thing that nobody can really grasp. In our case, it's, it's written down in a static site generator and it's published to the whole world. And if someone wants to know what the expense policy is or what the definition of done is for an uh, engineering code review, they can go read what it is. And if someone has decided to change a policy or something like that, but not open the, up the handbook, it's not real. That's not the policy. The policy is what's in the handbook. And what's cool about that is, um, you know, this, this sort of open-ended ethereal process I talked about, about managers, especially changing the state of their company. For us, it happens in a very, um, uh, a very direct and understandable way. There's a, I want to change a policy. I go find the page of the handbook that describes it. I open up a merge request. I make my changes. And then people can see the diff. This is exactly what's been added, removed, or changed to a policy. And they can comment on it. They can suggest it. They can author their own stuff. It doesn't have to necessarily emanate from management. And then when it, merged, it merges, it gets deployed and the, the documentation is up to date and everybody knows that's the, that's the new policy. That's what we're going to follow. So we've actually formalized something that I now understand about my previous roles and previous companies always existed and always was true, but we've made it a very real and rigorous uh, process to, I think, everybody's benefit without adding a lot of you know, red tape and the, the bad things that come with that. Yeah, much cooler to do that on GitLab instead of on uh, on, a, on a wiki, right? And, and Confluence. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's you know, wikis are wikis are fine. Um, it's difficult to do things like multi-page edits, um, which many of our changes are, and um, you don't necessarily have all those sort of like editing controls and 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 things like that. Like it's with a, doing it on GitLab. You know, we have review apps. So if I do an MR, you can actually see a version of the handbook at a at a non-production URL, and you can see the whole rendered page there. And if uh, if you don't like it or if we change it, fine. We haven't we we haven't uh, changed it in production, of course, because it's all Git based. You have an audit trail, and we know exactly who changed what when, and can can revert and all that stuff. So. Yeah, it's nice. And if you if you have a few engineers uh, in your in your in your teams, then uh, yeah, most of them will will like Markdown, right? So 
Yeah, I mean, Markdown, the, the workflow is a direct hit for what engineers do all day. So they take to it really easily. Um, it is, I think, a little bit of a heavier lift to um, have uh, the other personas that make up our company, marketing and sales and uh, people ops, to get comfortable writing Markdown using this flow. But um, it's a great chance for them to be hands-on with their company's product. And a lot of them have worked at other places where they didn't get a chance to use the product. They had to sell it, but they, they weren't actually using it. They didn't need to use it. And uh, in, in our case, we do a good job eating our, eating our own dog food because everybody at GitLab needs to be a essentially all-day, everyday user of the product. And so we have a high degree of understanding and empathy of what our users and, and what our customers go through. And so um, if people don't necessarily come with that kind of prior technical experience, Using the the workflows I mentioned, they you know, they get it, um, and they're incentivized by learning learning their company's own product and, and using it. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the edge cloud movement. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, the New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. So um, thanks a lot. Coming back or stepping a, a step back to, to remote working. Um, so what would you say are the, the free most important things you have to do if you want to want to be a successful remote first company? Just three. Um, Or five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to prioritize. Um, I, I do, I, I do think that, um, you know, I mentioned like it's our documentation culture and working asynchronous is how uh, we sort of conquer that time zone challenge. When we interview, especially managers who are coming from other companies, we ask them like, well, how do you work with teams in, uh, you know, if they're Europe-based, how do you work with teams in, in India or in Australia or, or whatever the, the time zones are, they're bridging. And usually say, oh, well, it's just on me and I just do phone calls on the weekend and in my evening time and whatnot. And like, that's um, that's not sort of our approach. Um, some remote companies have kind of constrained the problem by saying, we're just going to be in the Americas. So like, we're going to hire people in North and South America and we're not going to deal with time zones, but you have to anyway, because you, you have support people, you have SREs and whatnot. And I think um, I would really encourage companies to um, take on this problem or take on this opportunity and then use asynchronous as a solution to it, because it's a way that we can, um, uh, really have a tremendous degree of diversity. I mean, we've got people um, located in uh, Pakistan and Thailand and Australia and Japan and South America and Africa and all over. And so we have a tremendous degree of built-in um, diversity. And that's something the technology industry um, really needs. Um, and you cannot reap that benefit of remote work unless you're willing to work with people um, across time zones. And to us, the answer to that is working asynchronously. So. Um, I really advise those techniques for the benefit of working globally. I mean, I think like technology, the technology industry, technology salaries, uh, if you look across the world are on the high side. Um, if we can send that earning power to different people all over the globe, you know, remote work has the potential to lift people out of poverty, to create middle classes in countries that don't have it today. And if we're not um, uh, taking advantage of that opportunity, I think we're falling short of the, the promise of, of, uh, of remote work. 
So like sometimes, you know, we talk about like the potential for, I think Sid or CEO calls it the great leveling, which means like at some point in the future, you know, the, the difference in salary between Angola and San Francisco, California in the U.S. would be the same. Um, and that's, that's going to take a long time to sort of unfold, but that would tell us, you know, there's a, uh, there's a tremendous degree of equity kind of across the, across the globe. It'll take time, but, um, you know, certain companies have to innovate and initiate these things. And then, uh, you know, we would, we would actually lose an advantage that GitLab has in some way, shape or form if that would happen, because we, we do pay local rates, um, local market rates, and that allows us to have roughly double the uh, number of engineers on our payroll compared to a company that was just based in downtown San Francisco. And so if the great leveling occurred, we would lose that advantage. We'd have the the same number of heads on our payroll for the same money, but we would absolutely trade that advantage for the benefits of, uh, you know, like I mentioned, uh, bringing people potentially out of poverty, creating middle classes all over the world. That would be a net benefit to humanity. So we we would take that um, uh, in exchange for sure. So that's one thing. New advantage, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that's the first. That's uh, I'll get off my soapbox, but that's um, that's probably the first thing. Um, I think um, I'll say something that that's interesting is like when when the pandemic happened and traditional companies were forced to go all remote. We read some articles that said, "Oh, the sales of so-called spy software, like employee spy software, going through the roof. Like monitoring what your employees are doing on their home computer." And what that told me is some managers have kind of fallen to the mode of like, well, I'm used to kind of walking the production floor and surveying the corrals of desks. And that's how I develop my sense of whether or not my organization is healthy or productive or these various things. And then when everybody were at remote, you lost that tool and there's a sense of anxiety came in. And the instinct was, well, let me replace that with some form of automation that does the exact same thing. Um, GitLab, we know from experience from doing this before the pandemic, during the pandemic, when people are at home, if anything, they tend to work harder. Um, And what we find ourselves doing is actually being very deliberate and coaching people to take vacation. Um, It's okay to take time off. It's okay to, you know, not be there. Um, And so it's almost exactly the opposite um, instinct that a lot of, uh, a lot of folks had when the pandemic started that you need to exercise. Cause if, um, if you don't do that, yeah, people work harder. Um, and you'll see, oh, wow, we're so productive, but obviously that's not sustainable. You'll see attrition and, and people will be relatively unhappy. Um, and so I, I encourage people to, uh, you know, um, encourage your team to take time off. And then also as a leader, try to model the behaviors that you want to see. Um, a lot of people will listen to what you're saying and nod, but really they're thinking like, this isn't true. I can't actually do this. The signal that they will take about what's actually okay to do is by observing what you as a leader do. And so I tell people it's okay to take a vacation. And when I take a vacation, I actually sort of advertise, which I'm not, I'm not necessarily comfortable doing on its own merits, but I know if that will help other people really understand, yeah, it's okay to take vacation time. We have not just an unlimited vacation time, we have a no-ask vacation time policy. Uh, and we want people to uh, take it because we know that they're working uh, tremendously hard. So I think people should be aware of that sort of like counter or unintuitive aspect of, of remote work and just let go of that anxiety. I, I don't quite know what my, my people are doing. It's like, um, you know, you'll see, you'll see if your organization is, is productive or not based on the results. You don't have to see the works in progress to get that sense. So, so two questions. Uh, so, so the first one on productivity of, of, of remote work. And um, I do agree that um, especially if you have more senior people, this really is the case that you just have more time. You just want time. You just, in your 
in the environment you love and you 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 like working in uh, if you have the right hardware at home everything's fine and you you're more productive what about more junior people that um, potentially are not yeah. working for for ages is that yeah, different how do you solve that challenge it is different yeah and this is a fantastic question so um when i started at gitlab we had a level called um the junior engineer and um They weren't having a good time. I could see from our our people ops metrics, like the attrition rate was an outlier. It was it was abnormally high for that level. I'm like something something isn't right here, and nobody really had a sense of it. We talked to some external companies, like other. There was a handful of other remote only companies, so we talked to some people from there, and they were seeing the same thing. And what that told me is okay. There's there's an open unsolved problem here, but if everything I described about remote work being the future of the world and having this great power to improve the human condition, but it doesn't work for young people. That's a big problem. And so, um, and around that same time, we also shifted into what I would call like hyper growth mode. So I, I mentioned uh, I was the hundredth person in engineering very quickly. Uh, this is like calendar year 2018. Um, we got the mandate to grow really fast. So we grew 100% in 2018 and 130% in 2019. And when you're growing that fast, you do need kind of more experienced people. So we, we took the decision at this point, we have a problem. We don't quite know how to solve it. We also separately have the mandate to grow really fast. We need more experienced people. So we kind of put rules in place that said like roughly about two years of professional experience is kind of our bar. But when we did that and, and allowed us to, that allowed us to grow really successfully, but we also, we never lost in the back of our heads that we have to come back to this problem and solve it. And when, um, um, when we stopped growing, it could, obviously it becomes hard to grow over hundred percent when you're already so large. So engineering at that point is like 550 people. It's really hard to go at a hundred or more percent at that point. So when the percent growth slowed, we said, okay, now it's time to come back and really dig our teeth into this problem and figure out what's going on here. So we didn't bring back that old kind of junior engineer hiring process. We brought back what we call engineering internships. And, um, you can Google this. There's a whole process, a set of processes around it. But some of the things we do is we said, you know, okay, teams that are going to seat an intern effectively, um, they're going to have a manager that's relatively established. They're going to have a team that's sort of at critical mass and they're not going to be doing a bunch of like other hiring going on. And they're going to have a staff engineer that's ready, you know, a senior individual contributor that's ready to mentor that person to make them successful. So we actually have teams apply to take one of their vacancies and turn it into an internship. And, and not every team is in a position to do that well. So we, we reject some teams. Um, and then the key is for us, it's sort of almost like a temporary to permanent arrangement where you do an internship. And our goal is to find people um, who can reasonably convert into a full-time employee at the end of the uh, internship. And so we got to make sure that that vacancy is open and, and available. So it's like a team that's ready to hire someone And they're willing to make the investment in intern and make sure that that seat remains open at the end of the, uh, at the end of the, uh, the internship. Um, and we do technical assessments um, a different way because we're more open to people learning our stack for the first time versus a more experienced engineer that's supposed to be productive in 30 days um, and, uh, and, and various other things. And we ran our first kind of very deliberate, very careful internship program uh, the summer of 2020 And we were able to convert 75% of those people to full time. And so we actually exceeded our goals um, of, uh, of a pr uh, you know, preventing that attrition and, and that conversion rate. Um, and so that was, uh, that was great. And the, the crazy thing about that is that when we designed the program, it was before the pandemic. So we thought we need to do an in-person kickoff. So we're going to do, we're going to fly everybody to the Netherlands uh, where we have a bunch of GitLabbers, do a, a week of 
uh, sort of onboarding and hackathons and whatnot. People would go back to wherever they were from, do their three or four month internship, and then bring them to San Francisco and do sort of like an end of end of internship uh, party and same thing. And then the pandemic hit and we couldn't do those in-person things. And it turns out it wasn't necessary. And so the other things we had developed actually allowed us to make young people successful um, without relying on any degree of uh, in-person um, interaction. Um, and it, it worked, uh, it, it worked impressively well. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to report there is not a limitation about remote work for young people, or we, we didn't limit it to just young people. It's not a university internship program. We said anyone who's coming new to their first technology job, yes, it does end up being a, a proportion of university students, but it also might be someone who is an engineer in the energy sector. Maybe they're working on a coal mine or something like that, and they want to leave that industry and join software, or that could be an inter engineering internship uh, as well. And so we've proven that remote work can make uh, people new to the technology field for a variety of reasons um, successful in their uh, in their first job. And so uh, you do have, I, I would just advise that um, remote leaders out there just be very deliberate about that sort of thing. Because I think back to when I was new to the field and I described coming in with, you know, without the traditional computer science education and not knowing what a startup was or what equity or any of that stuff was. And uh, I was successful in part because I was sitting next to a couple of people uh, in an on-premise office and I just peppered them with questions all day long um, because I, I had a tremendous amount I needed to learn, not just about the, the skills of programming to be successful, but also how to operate in a professional environment, um, how, the, how um, customer and vendor relationships work and all those sorts of things. And so um, uh, you're doing a tremendous degree of learning in your first uh, first technology job and you need asynchronous and remote ways to, uh, um, to sort of push through that, push through that learning to be successful. And you have to support that. So you have to be very deliberate. Okay. Um, and then second question, you mentioned that you encourage people to take vacations and take days off. Do you mm -hmm. have something like a minimum amount of, of days off or? Um, we do have some guidelines. I forget exactly what it, uh, what it is, but it's like three weeks of vacation a year or something like that. But, but really we, uh, you know, sometimes when people need a day, whether it's, uh, like a, a mental health sort of day or during the pandemic, people have had to, uh, you know, um, maybe they're, they're caring for relatives who are sick or going to doctor's appointments or, uh, or whatnot. Um, it might be like in the moment as opposed to like, oh, I've got a vacation three months from now. Um, and so we really encourage people to take what they need, uh, you know, when they need it. Um, and sometimes it's just as simple as like, you know, take a couple hours off and go for a walk and get some sunshine and get your blood moving. Um, cause you're, you're getting a little bit burned out, um, as opposed to, you know, a, a matter of weeks of vacation time or something like that. Um, and that's maybe another lesson for remote managers is, um, you know, the, the signs of burnout, um, are harder to see when people are remote. Uh, when you're in person at the office, you see someone showing up to the stand, stand up five minutes late, or you see them kind of dragging around the office or something like that. And you don't have as, as much synchronous in-person time with people. You don't get to read their body language. So you just, again, have to be deliberate, you know, in one-on-ones, um, just be asking people the question, you know, don't underestimate the power of just us to be like, Hey, how are you doing? Um, how, how are you feeling? Do you, do you feel like you're getting burned out? Um, and then if they are, you know, working through that, uh, with them. Um, and, uh, we also, we coach our people, we, we say in our handbook, like try to be a manager of one, like, you know, you are the shepherd of your own time. Um, you know, manage it, manage it well. And that's part of being successful. And that's part of operating in a professional environment is, um, not burning yourself out. And so we, we, 
um, try to do our best to care for people and also uh, remind them that like, Hey, this, the, there is an element of personal responsibility. You have to manage your own, um, uh, your own self. And, uh, if you need help, you know, raise your hand and there's a variety of, uh, of resources available for people to do that. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> so uh, one thing I still wanted to touch is, is the, the fact of actually hiring people. So, I mean, you mentioned that you that you hire people on local rates, um, and I guess you use like the normal channels like Stack Overflow and and uh, and others. Um, is there some some secret sauce in um, actually proposing the right salary? Is there are there databases? Is there something you use to calculate the the, the cost of living factor or anything? Anything you can you 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 wanna wanna, wanna yeah. Um, well, so at most companies are scale 1500 people, you probably have a, a compensation focused team. Um, I would say we had to bring that online much earlier in our company's life cycle than you otherwise would. I think most 200 person startups have one person fully dedicated to compensation, but there's, there's a lot of complexity to understanding what the market is globally. And so we needed people to specialize that earlier in our company's life than most other companies. So that's, that's one lesson. Like you should have compensation specialists if you're, if you're going to do the a fully global thing. Um, in terms of what to sort of gear off of, like you probably have some form of formula where you understand um, the different rates for different roles, then the local market is the input to that. You can use cost of living. Um, from what I understand at GitLab, that was looked at early on. It was determined to be too difficult. They did use something called rent index, uh, which uh, as a proxy for that, because you know most of your money goes towards where you live. Um, But um, what we found is, is that that didn't do a great job covering specific markets. Like, uh, I think the, the secret is out at this point about Berlin. But year, uh, three years ago, Berlin used to be a place with uh, pretty economical rents for a major city, and, but very high tech salaries. And so rent index there was not a great um, proxy for how engineers were being paid. Now I, now I think that sort of corrected itself. I hear that rents in Berlin have gone up quite a bit over the last few years, but Austin, Texas, Berlin, other areas, it really, it made it difficult to hire there because it was not a good proxy. So what we say now is that um, we don't pay cost of living, we don't pay your index, we pay market rate. And there's a variety of inputs to what the market rate is. But we look at other salaries, other companies out there. We um, uh, do pay, uh, there's various companies that um, maintain their own databases and, and sell that data to various companies. Um, we use those as well. We try to integrate them uh, together to to develop our sense of what the local market rate is, um, um, and that that way you're covered. If there is a place that has, um, it's usually an outlier, but if some place has very low cost of living or very low housing prices, but a huge tech market with high salaries, you want to make sure you can be effective uh, recruiting there. And if you're just gearing off one of those elements, you're going to miss. And, and be ineffective hiring there. And then there's the, the opposite could happen. Sometimes you end up accidentally really overpaying a region. Usually we say like, yeah, we're, we're okay with that because usually when that happens, those are areas that are sort of low from a, a dollar amount anyway. Um, and it's an area where, you know, as I mentioned, like uh, the technology industry is, is trying to expand and, and try to get to those areas anyway. So it helps that, that positive di differential of the team member usually helps that sort of great leveling get a little bit closer. Um, so we're, we're much less uh, strict when those sorts of things happening uh, than, than the opposite. Okay. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, I think there should be like an open salary database, right? Uh, for, for engineering. <laughs> That would be quite, quite helpful. We'd, we'd love it. We had our, uh, we had our information um, 
public for for a time, but um, that prevented us from using um, external databases and whatnot because that's other that's other people's um, information, and uh, we couldn't give that away for free. So, um, um, someone should take that on, but um, and we'd be happy to benefit from it. But it is dynamic. I mean, it's it's not like you create it once and and everybody gets to use it forever. It's uh, it changes several several times a year uh, substantively. So it would be a big it would be a big commitment for for someone to uh, maintain that and be giving it away for free. Okay, so uh, one more topic to, to to cover is I think the the fact of giving feedback to to each other. Um, I think that's also something which is quite different in remote companies. Um, how do you do that? Do you have like processes on that or? I say again, sorry. Giving giving feedback, like giving others feedback. Is there like a structured feedback process in in in, in your world or? Um, I don't I don't think it's highly structured. We do we do have guidelines in our um, like when I think of highly structured, I think almost like a note going into your file, and so it's it's not like that. We do have a bunch of uh, processes and recommendations for. Um, managers and how they run one-on-ones and we uh, do want them giving feedback we want them being kind as they deliver feedback it should be kind it should be constructive it should be written down um, so it's clear um, people should have time to ask questions about it um, sometimes it can be difficult to receive feedback so people sometimes need time to process it and maybe you talk about feedback and then you address it the next day or the next one-on-one or something like that that's okay too um, we do say feedback should be you know one-on-one um, it may be true, but if you're giving someone feedback uh, amongst other people, I think you can un- unnecessarily trigger their sort of sense of shame or something like that. And then I think you've lost the opportunity to make that a, a teaching moment. Um, so we try to encourage people to um, um, to, to do that in, in sort of a closed setting or it's a safe space and then um, and, and make that between manager and, and managee and also um, peer-to-peer to the extent it's, uh, it's appropriate. So quite normal, no uh, McKinsey process that, uh, I don't know, encourages everyone to give at least five feedbacks to others every quarter or something like that, right? No, we don't have anything like that. And I would um, I would worry that you, you're not getting the quality um, from, from that. If it's forced, if it's, if it's too prescribed, um, I would question about whether or not uh, people are just sort of, you know, coming, coming, coming up with... Uh, um, you know, I have to give five, I have one thing, so I'm going to come up with another four, you know, I, I would worry about that aspect, but it'd be okay. interesting to see how that worked. Okay. Look, looking a bit more into the future. So what do you think how remote working and hiring remote engineers will, will look like in 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I hope that it's, um, you know, remote work, the technology industry in general can deliver on, on what I described and it's, um, it's, truly global. I mean, I'd love to see, uh, you know, more, uh, more tech companies, more tech employees in, uh, in Africa and, and Asia and these other areas, um, uh, where the relatively high salaries our industry pays can be benefit, not just those individuals, but it, it lifts the community up, I think. Um, and so I, I hope that more companies kind of take on this, uh, this very global, um, diverse, uh, approach and, uh, we can deliver on some of those some of those promises looking forward to see that yeah <laughs> so um i still have a little surprise for you eric um so uh, i actually discovered a hidden repository in your gitlab profile 
It is actually from your early days at Brightcuff, uh, a company that produces video streaming software you've worked for before. And it is a video player that contains real-time recording of your life. And now we have the chance to skip back in time, um, look at, watch, watch the video of your life and, and time-lapse through GitLab, Airware, uh, the Linux Foundation and everything you, you went through. And uh, we're now seeing you working at Brightcuff um, and we can now hit pause. And now we see you sitting there coding in a quiet room and um, now you have the chance to whisper something into into young Eric's ears. What what would it be? Yeah, great question. Um, gosh, I mean, part of, uh, you know, Every, everything I experienced, good and bad, was part of what kind of led me to where I am today. So for the most part, I tend not to have uh, regrets. I certainly go back and think, oh, well, I could have done that a lot better. But I, you know, I, I'm at peace with the fact I learned from those experiences. But um, I mean, one of, the, one of the, I think, the most remarkable experiences or learnings for me was uh, that um, might be good for knows, for younger me to know is... Um, I, I, I now have three kids. So I, I got married. I'm celebrating my nine year wedding anniversary tomorrow, actually with my wife. We've got three little girls, age one, four and six. And I feel like I got a, a relatively late start on that. And to some extent, I may have been kind of hesitant and um, think, oh, it's going to take away from my time at work or my personal time, whatever. And now having gone through it, I realized like, gosh, I'm, I'm actually so much more effective at work for the time that I have to take out of the day to spend with my family and to care for small children. And that's so counterintuitive. I never would have guessed that that was the case. And what I realized is in those days, you know, I had the flexibility to pull an all-nighter or work around the clock or whatever it was. Um, and I felt that I was delivering more results and I probably felt I was efficient at the time. But what I, what I know now is I was probably ruthlessly inefficient. I could do net more just because I was putting, you know, I got diminishing returns for that extra time I was putting in and having kids, it really forced me to ruthlessly prioritize my time. So now I have my working hours and, um, I know that I need to get the most out of those working hours because when you're interacting with small kids, like there is no, there's no negotiation. If they want to play or if they need something, you have to do that thing. And uh, I'm for the, for the focus that I now have on my work time, I'm so much more effective. Um, and, uh, and I, I imagine, I hope I'll retain that after the kids are older and become more, more independent. And it just shows me like, yeah, if I could tell myself that, um, you know, uh, that fact um, you know, I, I probably could have figured it out uh, earlier and that I was uh, past that point of administering turns out necessarily knowing it. And, you know, you always have those experiences of like you're coding and all of a sudden it's 1 a.m. and you're like, oh, I should refactor this. And then you, know, you go another four or five hours and you wake up the next day and read the code. It's like, who wrote this? What was I thinking? Um, those are the types of things when you push yourself too hard. And it's actually net positive to... Um, uh, constrain yourself and try to get the most out of that time. And you like say like, uh, you know, uh, great art comes from constraints like, uh, Shakespeare writing in iambic pentameter, you know, writing those, those sonnets. It's a very formal structure. And yet that's part of where the sort of beauty of the art comes from. I think that's true for, uh, for work and for, for coding and, and engineering and whatnot. So I would say, welcome, welcome those constraints, try to work within them. And, uh, you would find your way, uh, uh, to be more effective. 
Yeah, having kids is like jumping in ice water first, right? (laughs) (laughs) The first one especially is eye-opening the way it affects your life. But it's also a one-way door. You you can't imagine what it's going to be like with kids and you you walk through that door and you can't ever imagine the world where they don't exist. Uh, It's a remarkable experience, but a, a positive one even for work. Yeah. I still had that moment on, on weekends when I had like one one hour um, in the middle of the day where um, my, my daughter was sleeping and um, I could still do something. But then at a certain time also disappeared. <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 and then you just realize, okay, yeah, I have to live with it. And it, it, it's okay. I, I can I can work at other times. It's it's just yeah. fine, right? And it's it's hard to if if you want to get hands on technical, it's hard to do anything in an hour, especially if you if you've been away from technology for a while and you have to go back and set up your local environment or whatnot. You probably get halfway through that and then your hour is gone. And so you do need those four or eight hour stretches to uh to get really uh really hands on. But um um but yeah it's uh it's it's been a really positive experience. And so uh if you're about to have a kid, just know uh yeah it's it's difficult, but it's uh it's certainly a very positive experience. Um and if you're hesitant about it as I was in in my young days, uh you know I would say don't be uh don't be afraid. You'll survive. <laughs> and you obviously did, and uh, we, well, we also we also survived this this podcast, and it was a very positive experience for me. So uh, thanks a lot, Likewise. Eric, um, for for being my guest, and uh, I hope we can repeat it at a certain time. Maybe we meet in person at a certain time. Uh, let's <laughs> let's see whenever traveling is allowed again. Um, yep. So looking looking forward to meet you again, Eric. Thanks All a right, lot. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.